Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week we start with Cristobal de Villapondo. Along with Jonathan Brown, a two-time Man Podcast guest, and Clara Bargolini, Metropolitan Museum of Art curator Rhonda Castle is the co-curator of Cristobal de Villalpando, Mexican painter of the Baroque, which is at the Metropolitan in New York through October 15th. Villalpando is considered one of the two major artists of 17th century New Spain. The Met's survey of his work features 11 paintings, including Villalpando's 28-foot-high Transfiguration of Jesus from 1683, his first masterpiece. If you haven't seen the video of the Met installing that yet, Go to manpodcast.com. It's quite a thing. On the second segment, Nelson Atkins Museum of Art curator Rima Gurnius discusses two recently attributed paintings in the Nelson Atkins's collection, Hieronymus Bosch's The Temptation of St. Anthony and Albrecht Bautz's Christ Crowned with Thorns. But first, Rhonda Castle, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Paint the Revolution, Mexican Modernism, 1910-1950, the most comprehensive exhibition of modern Mexican art displayed in the United States in more than seven decades, featuring some 175 works and including masterpieces by Frida Kahlo, Jose Clemente Orozco, Diego Rivera, and Rufino Tamayo. Now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash revolution for more. Throw it back at the Getty on Saturday, August 26th at 6 p.m. with the glam rock, southern boogie, and soulful nostalgic sounds of Savoy Motel. Presenting its annual outdoor summer concert series off the 405, the Getty brings some of today's most exciting bands to the stage for an evening of live music and stunning architecture and breathtaking sunset views. Learn more about this show and other upcoming performances at getty.edu slash 360. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents the West Coast premiere of Marissa Mertz, The Sky is a Great Space, following its celebrated run at the Met in New York. Bringing together five decades of work, the exhibition explores the prodigious talent and influence of the Italian painter, sculptor, and installation artist Marisa Mertz. Co-organized by the Hammer and the Met, this first U.S. retrospective exhibition of Mertz's work is on view June 4th through August 20th at the Hammer Museum. Also on view this season, Living Apart Together, featuring recent acquisitions from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, including Dato Moriyama. Details online at hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. Rhonda Castle, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. Louisa, Elena Alcala, and Jonathan Brown say that by, quote, common consent, Cristobal de Villapando was the most inventive painter of the 17th of 17th century New Spain and acknowledge that some of his fame and our consideration of him is due as much because of his work as because there's an unusually rich trove of biographical material about him. Is that kind of how you'd classify him, too, or is your take a little different? I would certainly classify him as as one of the most inventive painters of the period and and interestingly enough I, I think he would he would agree he he signs a, a great number of his paintings Vialpando Inventor or Vialpando Invento so he he places a great emphasis on his own inventive capacity and and makes a makes a distinction between the intellectual authorship of, of his compositions and the, the manual labor of, of actually painting them. So he, 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 he clearly thinks of himself as an inventor. That idea is, is throughout the catalog. Where does he, I mean, I can't, and, 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 and you couldn't either, obviously, in the catalog, come up with anybody else who insisted on that form of self-presentation. Where does he get that? How does he, why does he develop it? It's a convention of, of European printmaking. I think that's, that's ultimately the origin of it. And he's clearly an artist who, who consulted prints and clearly was looking at the works of Rubens. And, and I suspect that that, that, that that is where it originates, prints that are signed Rubens Inventor and then, and then engraved by, by somebody else. There are a few other painters who signed their works this way in the, in the 17th century in, in New Spain, but 
so it's not it's not unique but but I, I think it's proper to to note that that that, that he, he he tends to emphasize it before we get to the paintings and and the mature career let's start with a bit of background Villalpando is born in Mexico City, probably in the late 1640s. Where and how does he learn to become a painter? We have very little information about how he was trained, um, no information, essentially. Um, as you noted, he was probably born around 1649 in Mexico City. That much is, is documented. He doesn't appear to have, have ever trained outside of of, of of Mexico. I think years ago there was a great deal of speculation about about whether he possibly traveled to Spain and and um, trained there, but I think it's been pretty well established by Rogelio Ruiz Gomar and others that he that he never he never left. It was basically I think he had I think he had something like nine children. And it's 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 pretty clear that he he never left Mexico City, or never left Mexico. I'm sorry, let me clarify that. Yeah, because his first great painting is is not in Mexico City, or at least his first you know very great, very famous painting is not in Mexico City. It's an enormous thing that you you, you amazingly got for the Met. I mean, for the show as as alone, and that's the Transfiguration of 1683, which Villapando painted for a chapel at the Pueblo Cathedral. How did he come to get the commission? And you know, we'll have a, we'll, we'll have a link to the video of the the installation of the work at the Met on on manpodcast.com, and we'll try to embed it if we can. But I don't think it can be overstated that this is an overwhelmingly enormous object <laughs> that's it seems to me would have required you know it's hard for painters to go big so how did he get there it's fairly clear that that Cristóbal de Villalpando was active in Puebla prior to 1683 there, there are a few other works in Puebla Cathedral that on the basis of style appear to be somewhat earlier they're not actually dated so I, I should I should stress that it's really on the basis of of, of, of stylistic analysis that they're placed a little bit earlier. The, the, the large painting that you refer to is, is, is actually a wall painting for a fairly small chapel, and it, it it's not documented at all. The, the, the commission isn't documented. There's a certain amount of evidence that it was commissioned by the bishop, who was Manuel Fernandez de Santa Cruz, better known to history as Sorfilotea, which was his his pseudonym or a pseudonym he used. But it, the, the commission isn't actually documented. It's often assumed that Villalpando was working in Puebla alongside Baltasar de, de Chave Rioja on the decoration of the sacristy in Puebla Cathedral. And de Chave Rioja died in 1682. So a commission, uh, uh, the commission of the Transfiguration and the Brazen Serpent is something that he likely would have would have gotten if he if he were still alive in 1683. The painting is 28 feet tall. It's essentially two paintings in one, both kind of literally and not. Why is that division important to the story Villalpando is trying to tell or show here? Yeah, it's a, it's a really it's a completely unprecedented juxtaposition of subjects. To as far as I know, the lower half of the of the composition tells the Old Testament story of Moses and the brazen serpent, and the upper half of the of the painting narrates the the gospel story of the of the transfiguration of of Jesus. And both of these both of these stories have to have to do with 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 salvation uh, in, a, in a nutshell. One of the things that I discovered in the course of, of working on the exhibition was that the painting was installed or is installed in a chapel where the Bishop of Puebla confessed the the faithful during the last two weeks of Lent so that they could celebrate Easter Mass un, unburdened by 
by sin. So if you look at the painting very closely, you'll notice that in the in the foreground of, of the painting is a is a kneeling figure, a very contrite figure who's looking up at the at the brazen serpent. And I'm, I'm sure you know the story of the brazen serpent that that the the Israelites are are punished with this terrible plague of of poisonous serpents for speaking against God and against Moses. And then God commands Moses to set up this image of a, of a, of a serpent so that those who look at it will be, will be saved. So in the, in the foreground of the painting, there's this very prominent figure of, a, of, of this penitent man looking up at the, looking up at the serpent. And I, and I think that relates very directly to the, the functional context of, of this painting. The upper half of the of the composition is is the Transfiguration. So he's he's in a way he's juxtaposed juxtaposed one of the most terrifying subjects in the history of art with one of the most beautiful ones, and it it, it shows the transfiguration of the corporeal body of Jesus into light. And he's flanked by Moses and Elijah. And uh, the whole miracle is witnessed by um, three dumbstruck apostles who kind of tumble backwards. And one of the things I noticed when, when I got to see the painting up close under natural light was that these apostles are actually overcome by this amazing transparent cloud you see them with their heads literally in the clouds or their hands reaching through through this transparent cloud and i mean such an incredible artistic challenge for a painter to 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 materialize light in paint it's i think i think when when visitors come to the museum and have a chance to to see this painting up close, uh, they'll be really astonished at, at just the the not not just the complexity of the, of the subject matter, but the just the incredible inventiveness and originality and capacity of of the painter. Or at least I hope that's what they'll come away with. You know, the, the physicality of being in front of the painting was something I wanted to ask about. So, you know, again, this being a painting that's 28 feet tall and 14 feet wide, would it have been or was it installed in Puebla so that the, you know, more or less the bottom of the canvas would be on or near the ground so that as a as a viewer in, in the church would approach the painting, that the viewer would be joining the group, the throng of people at the bottom of the painting? Yeah, the painting is it it's installed on a on a wall to the right of of the altar. So as one enters the chapel, the the painting is on the right hand side and its lower edge is about five feet off the floor. So you'd be looking up at it a little bit. You're looking up at it, and we've in, we've installed it at, at essentially the same height at the museum. The chapel is really kind of small, and it's hard to step back from the painting and get a get a full view of it. In the chapel, it's it's it, the top part of it is illuminated by a window over the main altar, and the lower part of it is pretty dark. In the 17th century, it would have been illuminated by a huge silver oil lamp that's described in some documents. At the Met, uh, as I mentioned, we've, we've, we've installed it at, at the intended viewing height or the artist's intended viewing height, but you're able to see it from quite a distance. And it, it, it's also possible to see it not just from below, but from above because of the, because of the design of the Lehman Pavilion. I know that a little later on, Viopondo discovers Rubens through prints, probably. At this point, when he's when he's working in Puebla, when Viopondo's in his early 40s, say, how much is he leaning on European painting 
either via prints or copies that have made it to, to New Spain? And how much is he either inventing or taking things from a specific New Spanish Catholic or painterly tradition and using, using them? It, it's pretty clear that he's consulting prints, especially by Rubens. He's not copying them. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't appear to ever borrow motifs from, from, from prints without altering them. But if you look at the brazen serpent, for example, and at Rubens' prints of the prints after his paintings of the same subject, you'll notice that there are. There are motifs that he borrows. The woman who who lifts the infant up so that the child can see the can see the serpent, or the the woman sort of half naked woman with her arms raised into the into the air in a kind of mad terror. That's a motif that 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 exists in Rubens' prints, but 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 it's changed considerably. He doesn't copy the pose exactly. Ah, so he has seen Rubens by 1683. He, he, he riffs on it. Yeah, he certainly has. And, and even even before that, he was... He, there, there, are, there are copies after a, a series of Rubens' uh, apostles. Also in this exhibition is a, a painting of the Adoration of the Magi, which was also painted in 1683 and which was only recently discovered. And in, in that painting, he also references Rubens. But I would say he riffs on Rubens. He doesn't, he doesn't ever copy it. So it's really one, one of the nice, it's very nice to see this other painting from the same period and a major painting that, that was really unknown until a couple of years ago. And it was conserved at the Met. So we've had a chance to, to study it very, very closely in, in connection with, uh, with the painting from Puebla. The painting you're referencing, Adoration of the Magi, is at Fordham. It's eight feet, it's roughly eight feet by, by seven feet. So it's, it's really large, but it's not as huge. And as you mentioned, it was, it was conserved for this show. I know you're not a conservator. But did the conservation process and result teach you anything either specifically about this adoration or, or the painter in general? It taught us a fair amount about how he blocks out his figures before painting them. He paints very directly, and certain passages of this painting are in, let's just say the, the condition is rather compromised, and you can see the his his first brush strokes where he where he blocks out the the, the folds of of the the garment of the virgin in particular it's it's a passage that was painted in smalt using a pigment that, that's very very fugitive and and we can now see how he how he laid out the figure and it's quite interesting you know, he he painted very directly this isn't a particular surprise. I don't think anyone expected to see carefully underdrawn compositions or or compositions that have been transferred using using cartoons. He's 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 really quite direct. Another painting from Pueblo that's in the show is uh, is an Immaculate Conception. Is is a Villapando Immaculate Conception. There are many, 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 many continental Spanish takes on this subject from from roughly this period. What distinguishes Villapando's? Well, it, it, it's interesting that you should mention that painting in particular because it's one one that he does copy from a Spanish source. There's a there was a painting by Francisco Rizzi of the Immaculate Conception that made it to Puebla and was was copied more than once by artists of, of Villalpando's generation. So he's, he's, in this case, he's looking at the work of a, of a painter from Madrid and borrowing the composition and, and I think was probably influenced by this very expressive painterly style that was employed by, by Rizzi. But Villalpando takes it even further further into the realm of, of of really spectacular lighting effects. You'll you'll see, you know, not just 
not just swirling clouds and, and swirling draperies and and supernatural light, but these really interesting passages of, of rays of light that punch through these kind of murky clouds. It's a really interesting painting. It's painted on the, it's painted on a, a, a canvas that is textured, so the the light reflects off it in an interesting way and gives it an even more ethereal feel because it's the light is is refracting differently. It's a painting full of, of movement and swirling and like a number of Viapondos I know, which is not very many, it's it's a very vertical composition. Is a certain verticality a real Viapondo thing or Am I just noticing it in a couple of paintings that happen to be in the show and, and in other places? Yeah, I, th- I think that that is, is maybe an impression that's that's coming from from just this exhibition. There's also a really beautiful ex- really beautiful painting of the holy name of Mary in in the exhibition that is a has a horizontal format and a kind of asymmetrical horizontal composition kind of a fascinating painting because it's a the subject is really quite abstract how do you how do you paint the holy name of mary you know beyond the usual way of the using the monogram of of mary to to signify the name I, I think that what Vialpando has done in this, this very interesting composition is try that he's tried to paint the sweet sound of her name She's uh, kneeling and adoring this monogram above her head, but she's surrounded by angels who are making music and singing. It's a very, very unusual composition, a a wonderful invention, if you will. I I don't know of anything else quite quite like it. She's also kneeling beside uh, the Ark of the Covenant, so you know, the clear meaning of that is that she's the, the Ark of the New Covenant. Yeah, she's kneeling and she's still taller than some of the angels around her. Right. Uh, what a, <laughs> you know, I, I have not seen the show at, at the Met yet, and I have certainly not seen the show either in its present home in Mexico City or in the place for which it was commissioned. But one of the things I noticed about this painting in, in JPEG is that the tiled floor seems to tip toward the foreground in a way that suggests a vanishing point that might have been relevant to how it would have first been installed in a church or or related to a church. D- did you see it installed for the place it was meant to be? And, and does the vanishing point kind of put the viewer in the scene in a particular way? Are, are you are you referring to the the holy name? Well, I mean that's kind of what I'm wondering. I mean, is there is there a place that the vanishing point gets us to that is iconograph iconographically pointed? I, I had I hadn't actually thought of that, but the the you're very likely right about that. The the, the painting itself, the, the holy name, comes from the museum of the Basilica of, of Guadalupe, so it's not in a church and we don't know its its original location but yeah those those sorts of clues are 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 really really important it's in what appears to be its original frame so it may never have been part of an altarpiece i mean it is actually framed and such an such an unusual subject but but yeah, I think I think you may be onto something uh, with respect to the the, the vanishing point, uh, at least in terms of how high the painting was 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 hung, and it may also account for the for the uh, unusual asymmetry of the of, of the composition. The Ark of the Covenant is on the left, and and it is in the extreme kind of the overly extreme foreground, all of which will be evident if listeners. Take a look at the, the image on manpodcast.com. There are a couple of other Puebla paintings here that are on copper that also kind of seem to me anyway to be kind of original ways of doing something. One of them is Adam and Eve in Paradise. By the standards of paintings on copper, it's it's pretty good size, two feet by about three. What about the way Viel Pondo handles Adam and Eve is unusual? Well, I suppose the most unusual thing about it is that that it incorporates a, a, a series of 
of vignettes that that tell the the story of the the creation of Adam and Eve and their eventual expulsion from from the garden. And these vignettes are kind of kind of fascinating. In in one of them, one sees the, the three persons of the Trinity forming Adam out of a lump of clay, and, uh, as if they were sculptors. And in another, one sees uh, God the Father blowing life into Adam's ear, giving him life by blowing air into his in, into his ear. Another kind of wonderful vignette shows the the serpent tempting Eve with the forbidden fruit, which the snake holds in its mouth and offers to her, because of course it has no hands, right? This is another of these compositions that that is signed Vialpando Invento. Actually, I think it's signed Vialpando Inventor. So he's insisting in, in a way on his... On, on his invention of this this image, which depicts divine creation, and that was a parallel that that artists often insisted on, uh, comparing their creative capacity or their their work as painters to divine creation. Another interesting thing about this painting is that that it's paired with an image of the deluge, so the creation of the world is paired with an image of the destruction of the world. And it's unclear whether these paintings were were initially conceived as independent works or a, a pair of independent works or whether they were painted for the place where they're currently installed in Puebla Cathedral. They're in a, an octagonal chapel called the Capilla de los Chavo with dozens and dozens of other small-scale works um, incorporated into the, the decoration of, of sort of floor-to-ceiling decoration of this octagonal chapel. So other works on copper, some of them from Flanders, featherwork images, all of them incorporated into this this kind of golden room. This pair of paintings was done in in 1689, when Vialpando was back in Puebla, painting the the cupola over the over the main altar of the of the cathedral. So before I ask about that cupola, which which is not in the show, but which is a remarkable and very rare thing, I'm not familiar with narrative treatments of the Adam and Eve story within single paintings. And, and, and here the vignettes go left to right and then foreground to, to background. Is that as unusual as I think it is? <laughs> you know, I, I think one could probably find precedence for it in, in Flemish painting. I haven't tried to do that, but I, but I, I suspect that, that he may have had access to, to Flemish paintings of the, of the subject. You know, we, we, often, we often talk about Vialpando, Vialpando's access to, to prints, and in particular to Flemish prints, which were exported to, to New Spain in, in great numbers, very portable and not very expensive, and uh, must, have, must have arrived by the, by the thousands in New Spain. But I suspect that he also had access to small-scale paintings, especially paintings on copper from from Flemish workshops. You mentioned the cupola Viapondo painted for for Puebla. What makes it so noteworthy and extraordinary and unusual? Yeah, the the, the cupola that that Viapondo painted in in Puebla Cathedral was done after he had um, returned to Mexico City after after what I assume was his his triumph with the brazen serpent and the transfiguration and he had begun he had already begun work on the on the sacristy in in the the cathedral in Mexico City and he returned to Puebla before that sacristy was finished to work on this extraordinary cupola which represents the glorification of the virgin it, it's it's quite 
is quite unusual for lots of reasons, but but among them is the fact that it, it, it it's actually painted on canvas. It, it appears to be a fresco, and it, it's clearly referencing fresco decoration of of, of cupolas um, um, it, it, one would find in European churches, but it's actually painted on canvas. That goes all the way around the cupola and all the way up. Mm-hmm. And he kind of uses the light coming in through the top of the cupola to add a little verve to the golden clouds at the top. And and I, I suspect that he did something similar with the transfiguration in the nearby chapel, because there, there there's a window adjacent to the transfiguration, to this brilliantly um, illuminated scene of, of, of Christ becoming light and revealing his divinity, whereas the lower half of the composition is, is dark. And, you know, he, he makes similar use uh, of an actual light source in the, in the cupola. There, there, there is a picture in a book that we featured on the podcast a few years ago called Painting in Latin America, 1550 to 1820, written by Luisa Elena Alcala and Jonathan Brown, of the Transfiguration, and, and you can see, installed in, on, on site. And you can see in the picture, and we'll see if we can drag up an image of this for the website, that right at the bottom of where the window is, is looking up, is where the light in the painting begins, and that from the bottom of where the window would be on down, that light ends. The light coming from the painting ends. Uh, it's it's one of those those neat things you only get when you see the work where it was installed. Talking about where the work is installed, another kind of interesting thing is that on the altar adjacent to the, the brazen serpent is is an image of Christ at the column. And that image was thought to be a a miracle working image in other words like the brazen serpent that image had the had the the power to to heal and i i, I like to think that that there the the that parallel was maybe even more obvious to people at the time than it is to to us is there particular iconography that we might see in the paintings in your show that reflect specific influences that were organic to New Spain rather than came over from Europe? What's apparent to me is that the way in which Villalpando interprets some of these subjects is, is so incredibly individual and so particular to, to him. I don't know whether I don't know whether we can say that it's because he's a new Spanish artist, or whether it's whether it's because he's he's, he's just this extraordinarily in, inventive um, artist. I mean, for for example, the painting of the agony of the agony in the garden, which is maybe the earliest painting in the in the exhibition from around. It's from the 1670s. It's a nocturne, and it shows an angel appearing to Christ as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane and is presenting him with the chalice that signifies his acceptance of his faith. But the light source in this painting, and it's a brilliant, brilliant light source, is the angel. Uh, so it's it's this in, incredible supernatural light that illuminates simply everything in this in this dark garden. There's also a kind of interesting pentimento in that painting. The paint has grown more transparent over time, so you can see that the artist has, uh, in the final version, actually moved the chalice closer <laughs> to Jesus. It wasn't. It wasn't close enough. So he just he, he moved it even even closer to him. Oh, you're right. You really can't. You can see that even in the JPEG. In in, in the years after the Pueblo Commission, Via Pondo takes up a workshop practice and runs runs a large and thriving workshop. Do we see any changes in his work that come about as a result of that? You know, I wonder if he didn't already have a, a, a workshop at the time of the. Uh, at the time the Transfiguration was painted. 
when when you consider the size of that painting, and when you consider that that he painted the the Fordham agony or the Fordham adoration of the Magi in the same year, I I find it a little difficult to believe that that one painter could have could have accomplished all of that, and. It's interesting. It's interesting to, to speculate about about whether um, some of the artists who collaborated with um, Echavarria in in Puebla might not have joined in the in the painting of the of the Transfiguration and and, and other works of that period. Especially if you especially if you think of a of a of a workshop as something that is is comprised of of other masters. You know, not just um, subordinates and apprentices, but but other other independent masters. We we really know very very little about how these things were how these things were painted and how these how these shops operated. Is that future research opportunity type stuff, or are we never going to know? I I think we could know. I I, I think that um, you know one of the one of the the directions for future research is is the study of the of the materials and techniques of of the artists you know begin to begin to document that more carefully and develop a better understanding of how these things were were painted what materials they used what their what their processes were i i think there's a lot to be learned there Finally, every painting in the show, save the Fordham painting, comes from Mexico, and and this is a field in which you and a number of other American curators and historians work, and a field that must require, both in terms of loans for paintings, but access to materials and archives, the cooperation of Mexican authorities and the Mexican government. How does the President of the United States his anti-Mexican bigotry impact your ability to research and especially exhibit artists and works of art from Mexico? If anything, I think it it, it makes our our colleagues in in Mexico even more even more eager to 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 work with us. I haven't noticed that it's impeded us in any way, and I think there there seems to be even greater urgency surrounding this kind of collaborative work between between US art historians and researchers and and our and our colleagues in Mexico. Well, that's good to hear. Rhonda Castle, thanks so much for speaking with me. Not at all. It was a great pleasure. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents the world premiere of Gray Matters, May 20th through July 30th. A multifaceted survey organized by the Wex's senior curator of exhibitions, Michael Goodson. The show features 37 contemporary women artists working in shades of gray and marks the midpoint of a year in which the center's entire exhibition program consists solely of women. Through over 50 works, artists including Via Selmans, Ronnie Horn, Nancy Rubens, Arlene Sheckett, Lorna Simpson, and Kara Walker reveal the vibrancy as well as the expressive power in the spectrum between and including black and white. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Nelson Atkins Museum of Art curator Rima Gurnius. She's the curator of Rediscovering Hieronymus Bosch and Albrecht Bouts, which is on view in Kansas City through May 27th next year. The show features the recent reattributions of two paintings in the Nelson's collection, Hieronymus Bosch's The Temptation of St. Anthony from about the dawn of the 16th century, and Albrecht Bouts's Christ Crowned with Thorns from the very end of the 15th century. Rima Gurnius, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. You have a new but old Hieronymus Bosch, and the history of your painting somewhat parallels the history of how attributions have been done over the last eight or so decades. When did the museum acquire this painting, and what did it acquire it as? The uh, painting, The Temptation of St. Anthony, that is now attributed to Hieronymus Bosch, 
entered the collection in 1935 as uh, a work by the hand of Bosch himself. But uh, several years later, actually just two years later, that attribution was questioned. Charles de Tolnay, for example, in his catalog resume, listed it as a work, as a disputed work by Bosch. And I don't know exactly when the painting was then perceived as, as a work by a workshop member or circle of, but by the 1950s, it was cited in a lot of literature as School of Bosch. And that particular attribution remained until most recently when the result of the efforts of a group of interdisciplinary group of scholars called the Bosch Research and Conservation Project recently attributed to Bosch himself rather than a member of his workshop. So the downgrading, if you will, of the painting originally, as I understand it, wasn't based on anyone having seen the painting in 1937 or 38 or whatever it was, right? Yeah, I don't think they really saw it. I'm assuming that most of them, uh, most of this was based on, on reproductions. So and black part and white of photographs, course, right? <laughs> black and white photographs, yeah, which don't really do full justice. And part of the problem as well was that the painting was not in the best condition and is still not in the best condition. And sometime in the 40s and 50s, a conservator tried to you know, restore it, but he tended to have a bit of a heavy hand when he did that, and he transformed sort of the, the figure of St. Anthony into a great big red-bearded Viking. Uh, so so this, this sort of the poor condition of that painting and then the uh, restoration attempts sort of led a little bit to this, the deattribution of the painting as well, because you couldn't really see much of the hand of the artist. So how did it go from, you know, sitting as a school of painting, roughly, for, for 70 or 80 years? I'm not very good at math. It's about 80, yeah. 80, yeah, until, until recently. What was, the, what was the impetus for reexamining the painting? Well, I briefly mentioned the Bosch Research and Conservation Project, and this was, like I said, a group of scholars that uh, from 2010 to about 2016 were examining works of art by Bosch, all works attributed to Bosch. And this was in preparation for a major exhibition that was being organized by the Nordbrabant Museum in Sertogenbos in uh, the Netherlands to celebrate the 500-year death of Bosch. And so it's because of this sort of project that our painting uh, sort of came to the limelight. They had been curious about the painting for a while. A sort of amateur art historian had reached out to them and pointed out a detail. And then in July of 2016, they reached out to the museum and they requested any kind of documentary evidence that we might have had and images. And after looking at those, they decided to come and visit and see the painting in person just to verify and make sure that there wasn't something that they were missing. So they arrived then on September 28th, which happened to be my second week of work. And I still was not quite familiar with the museum. I mean, as most museums are just worn of little little uh, corridors. And uh, I remember before they came, I decided I, I sort of traced the steps that I would have to take to take them from, from the security desk up to the conservation lab because I was afraid of, you know, getting lost. So they arrived with their uh, equipment and studied the painting for two days. And at the end of their visit, they sort of were leaning towards the attrib attributing the painting to Bosch, but needed to sort of consider and consult with the other members of the, of the group. And then uh, several months later, we heard back from them, and they indeed you know, had determined that this was by Bosch. And then the painting was unveiled uh, in February of uh, 2016. Sorry, I think I said 2015 was, was, was when they, they visited us. In, in 2016, the painting was unveiled before the exhibition, and it caused quite an uproar. It generated an enormous amount of interest. And, and yeah, so that's, that's how it kind of came about. So is there anything in particular about the painting that, that stands out for you? I mean, I, you know, I think Bosch is more than almost anybody else. It's easy to have a favorite passage or a favorite part or a favorite, you know, critter. <laughs> I have a little, I have a favorite little critter. So the painting represents, it's a small fragment of probably a much larger composition. And you have the figure of St. Anthony that can be identified by the Tau cross on his robe. And he is kneeling on the edge of, of a, 
a body of water and he's dipping uh, this, this, this jug into the water. And in front of him in the foreground are this sort of host of monstrous little hybrid creatures. And one of my little favorite creatures is this beautiful little fish that has sort of crawled out from the murky waters and is gasping for breath. And it, to me, uh, seems uh, sort of displays a lot of the characteristic signs of a Bosch. There are sort of these, these fine little, little uh, blue flickering lights of, of blue paint that really animates the surface of it. And Bosch is sort of really known as a very confident painter, a very assured painter, who tended to intimate his forms rather than really describing them in great detail. And that little fish to me is, is my favorite little work. In our department, uh, every Halloween, we tend to dress up as a major painting. And the week the, uh, last year, we all dressed up as the Bosch painting. So I actually painted the little fish and had it kind of wander across the strange. We kind of did a little tableau vivant for the rest of our staff. <laughs> yeah, in, in to, to 21st century eyes, it's a vaguely evolutionary anticipating passage. <laughs> yes, yes. And it represents a little bit of the sort of theme of the topsy-turvy world of, of, of the natural order somehow being distorted. And I had mentioned before that, of course, the painting was not in the best state, but a lot of those little monsters and creatures were not overpainted by the conservator and still sort of remain somewhat sort of intact. And so uh, the Bosch Research and Conservation Project they sort of I noticed how a lot of those little creatures were sort of stock characters from Bosch's oven. They were able to identify other sort of examples in his work. So this little funnel creature that we have in the foreground brandishing a little toy sword can be found in other paintings as well. We'll have an image of the painting on manpodcast.com, of course. My understanding is that something about the waterline. So St. Anthony is dipping a, a jug into this mysterious body of water, a lake, a river, a puddle, who knows. And did something about that waterline tip off? Well, that's what this, this amateur art historian picked up on. So if he noticed, and he had emailed, uh, he had actually emailed us oh, a good year or so before the visit, and I think he also reached out to the BRCP, so that's that little detail that, that he identified. And he noticed that the waterline that does not hug the curvature of the jug and instead is completely straight. And that's something that he was able, has seen in a lot of other Bosch paintings. Ah, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a, that was a little tidbit that I think sort of he, he drew our attention to. So you have paired the Bosch with another 15th century painting. What is the other painting? It's Albrecht Bauz, Christ Crowned with Thorns. And so it hasn't exactly been reattributed, but it sort of has. How did it come to be on the wall as about? Well, it also entered the collection in 1940 as a work by Bouts. And actually, Friedlander, the sort of the iconic figure in early Netherlandish painting, thought it was by Bouts and one of his, you know, his original prototypes. And let me just interrupt really quickly. When you say prototypes, you mean something his studio would have seen and known and based similar paintings on? Well, yes, yes, yeah. So he is basically, he produced five different original types of, of representations of, of Christ crowned with thorns. And there are five of them overall, and ours is now considered to be one of the five. And then his workshop then reproduced those different variations of that particular sort of prototype. It was originally considered about in the 80s and 90s. Other scholars cast out on that attribution, but sort of the leading scholar of Albrecht Bautz, who wrote the catalog resume, her name is Valentin Hendrix, and uh, she sort of suspected or had suspected for a long time that the work was by Albrecht Bautz himself rather than a member of his workshop, and said as much in her catalog resume. And a good year or more ago, we received a request from Aachen, a museum in Aachen and in Luxembourg for an exhibition called Blood and Tears that was curated by Valentin Hendedix that really focused on Albrecht Bauz's uh, production of these sort of Christ crowned with thorn imagery. And that was, you know, the we were, I was very excited by that because this was the opportunity for this scholar to actually see our painting in person. I mean, she suspected it was by Bouts, but never had seen it. So this exhibition really offered 
her the opportunity or it offered us the opportunity to have that attribution confirmed. And when I actually did, she actually got to see it, she confirmed, she confirmed its attribution. Are there particular reasons why bounce experts now think that the Kansas City painting is, is, is by the master's hand? Well, it's mostly stylistic analysis. And one thing that I forgot to sort of mention when I was talking about the Bosch, that one of the crucial elements to the attribution of the Bosch was the discovery of the underpainting, the sort of compositional sketch, which was you know, discovered through the use of infrared uh, t- technologies. But in the case of the Bouts, it was mostly stylistic analysis, the opportunity to compare our painting with all of the other variations and this is what, what really led to the attribution. So my understanding is that in the exhibition, the, the Nelson Atkins painting was shown alongside versions of the painting, uh, which is round, and which is unusual, that are in Antwerp, Berlin, and Madrid. Were there any particular stylistic points that, that, that stood out between them? Yes, absolutely. So our painting really displays Bautz's technical virtuosity particularly in the rendering of the crown of thorns that has been thrust on the head of Christ. And one thing to sort of, if you compare our painting to other variations, are these sort of very pale yellow sort of flickering highlights that have been applied with a very quick brushstroke that add a lot of three-dimensional form to, to, to the crown. There are other details like these little specks of, you know, little specks of white, of highlight, in the blood, the, you know, the, the blood that is pouring down his face and in the tears. So there are other sort of details that really bring to life Christ's suffering and uh, sort of his, his anguish, which the other examples don't necessarily display quite to that same degree. The shadows from the thorns on the crown as they play on the Christ figure's forehead are also much more pronounced in your version. Yes, much more pronounced, and you have details like the, the thorns sort of piercing through his skin, and then, of course, just the way the eyes are rendered. I mean, in our painting, the eyes seem to be almost swollen from his tears, whereas the other ones can are a little bit more flat, and you see, I mean, especially the eyes are just so, so striking. You have these sort of glistening tears sort of welling up in his eye, and it's, it's, it's I just think our painting is just a stunningly beautiful painting. It, um, it's a very moving, moving image. We'll have an image of that side-by-side detail on manpodcast.com. Any future plans for either of the paintings, or for now, are you just enjoying having them up finally as 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 the new attributions? For the for the time being, it's going to be up for a good year. But and and once that exhibition comes to an end in a year or so, they'll be up, of course, in the permanent galleries for everyone else to enjoy. And I think there are always opportunities as well of of returning to those two paintings and probably creating some sort of interactive digital display that would allow visitors to sort of continue learning more about those paintings. Rema Gurnius, thanks so much for speaking with me. Well, thank you for taking the time to ask about my exhibition. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.